Well, good morning. Just in case you've, this is your first time with us, to, to clarify, I'm Doug. She's Leslie. Okay, so. Um, but we're excited to have Leslie with us today, and we do hope that you'll come back tonight uh, where you can ask questions of her and get to hear more of her story. Uh, but we want to just take a few minutes in the service, uh, have her share a little bit who she is, and then ask us a couple kind of simple questions of her. So just kind of start, Leslie, and kind of this uh, kind of a brief kind of bio or overview of a couple of highlights about who you are. Okay, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Leslie Baker, and I grew up in Minneapolis, Kansas. And um, that's my wonderful family up there. My husband, Jamie, we've been married almost 29 years. And then my daughter and her husband, and they just had their first baby, so I'm a grandma. Um, And then that's my son. And so um, I have been a teacher for 25-plus years, and I taught um, history, and then I went and got a degree in library science and have worked with kindergartners all the way through 12th grade. And then also the Lord has just laid it on my heart um, to dig in a little bit deeper with missions. And so my husband and I helped organize and, and take teams to short mission trips um, around the country and then around the world. And so um, it's just a pleasure to be able to be here and to learn more about your body and your children. And um, I just got to spend some time with him downstairs and really enjoyed it. So uh, obviously you've spent a lot of time with kids uh, in your career, your vocation. Uh, what, do you, what do you love about working with, with kids? I love the energy that kids have. Um, like I said, I was just downstairs, and we were dancing and moving and singing. And, and so that is one of the things that I really enjoy about kids. And I also just love their attitude. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of walls yet. And adults, we put up a lot of walls. And so it's just a... Um, a joy to work with them because they're excited and um, they're open to what you have to say. And so that's one of the things that I really enjoy about being with kids. Okay. And then um, if the Lord leads you to be a part of our, our church body, what would be your, 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 your hope, your biggest hope or dream for, for kids who walk through the doors and are part of our children's ministry? What do you hope they experience, Leslie? Okay, I hope that every child that comes in here, that they would experience God's love and that they would just know absolutely without a shadow of doubt that Jesus loves them. And then also, it's God is so good. The way that he works, the things that he laid on my heart this week to share, um, Pastor Doug is really going to share here in a minute, but really just that they would know the Lord, not just in their head, but in their heart, that it would be something that is not their parents' faith, but that it would be authentic and that they would have deep, deep roots so that when those challenges come, and they will come, that they have something that they can they can know that God is faithful, God is good. And so I, my prayer is that every child that enters this building, that they would be able to have that intimacy with Jesus that comes from drawing close to him. Because he laid it on my heart this week, James 4, 8. If you draw close to me, I will draw close to you. And he does that. And so that is really my hope and my prayer for the children here. Okay. And we're going to throw a bonus question. Oh, no. And you weren't <laughs> prepared for this one. Oh. Easy one, easy okay. one. So you, you've traveled quite a bit doing missions. If you could only go back to one place... Where would it be? Haiti. Haiti. I have okay. a heart for Haiti. Um, we just had the opportunity through Samaritan's Purse to work at an orphanage there. And um, Haiti is just a special place. And right now they really, um, you know, have a lot going on with their country, not only with COVID, but a lot of dis- um disruption and unrest with their government. And so not very many teams go. Um, but I have a thing on my wrist that I pray for Haiti daily. So Cool. Cool. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for... For Leslie, we pray for her and, and Jamie as well throughout this weekend. I pray that they would feel welcomed and that they would uh, just really feel our excitement uh, about Leslie and uh, 
just the whole opportunity that we have to get to know her and uh, pray that you would just give her discernment and give us discernment and we just lift this day into your hands, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, I'm going to encourage you, if you would, to, um, in your Bibles or your, your apps, Bible apps or whatever, that you turn to John chapter 3. Uh, it's a long passage. We're not going to read it right now, but we will reference it and read most of it as we work through our sermon today. So John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, where Jesus and Nicodemus begin a conversation. Today we're beginning a brand new sermon series that will run for the next six weeks up to Easter. And we're calling this sermon series Adventures in Messina Point. I, I love that title. Something I heard a number of years ago, there's a book by Tona Compolo by the same name. Uh, Philip Yancey uh, has a book, I, The Jesus I Never Knew, which has a lot of uh, kind of similar themes, uh, sermon series I've, I've heard over the years, uh, Ed Roll and other people. And so it's one of those uh, ideas I've had in my head for a number of years, and I was going through my, my kind of sermon uh, file uh, idea uh, folder, and I, oh, I, probably a couple months ago, I thought, I always wanted to do this one. I've not done it yet, so we're going to do Adventures in Missing the Point. Now, you might ask, okay, that's a cool title, Doug, maybe, but what is the point of the series? And, well, the point is, is that human beings where spiritual matters are concerned, we often end up, you know, missing the point. You know, it goes over our head. We, we miss the gist of, of what uh, is the point of, of a teaching or a story or a verse. And, and, for example, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so often he'll be interacting with people. He'll say something about himself or, or God or other people or faith or the world or whatever, and, and people miss the point. Or you'll see Jesus do something. It's outside the box. It shocks people, and they they end up interpreting it in the, in the wrong way. Or Jesus teaches the crowd a parable. And some of those parables, like, you have to kind of, like, kind of scratch your head and kind of wrestle with them. And you know, understandably, sometimes the listeners, they don't get it. They, they miss the point. Maybe you can relate. I mean, I know that there have been times when I have missed the point spiritually. And, you know, and hopefully at that time somebody will point it out to me or, or, or I'll realize it later. And where God and faith and life are concerned, when that happens, when we miss the point spiritually, when we emphasize something that's really minor or we, or we de-emphasize something that's really major and we miss the point, well, it can bounce us off on the wrong path. It can cause others around us to, to doubt or question the faith because of, they instinctively know there's something not right. Uh, and it can certainly send us into wrong thinking, wrong beliefs, and wrong actions. So we don't want to be people who miss the point spiritually. Now, if you grew up in the church, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you know that often when we read the Bible, uh, we, we kind of make these connections. Oh, I can relate to that. You know, uh, Maybe you have a, a kind of a rough family background, and you read, say, for instance, um, David, and you're like, oh, yeah, boy, it's trouble with kids, trouble with the marriage, whatever. I can get that. Or, or maybe you, um, you, you read about Peter. You know, Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, he's always putting his foot in the mouth. He's, he's always speaking before he thinks. He's very impulsive. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I can relate to that. Or I know somebody like that. Or, or you look at Martha and Martha, the story with her sister Mary and and Jesus comes over and she's so busy getting the food ready and getting the table set that she kind of 
you know, she kind of misses the point. Hey, you're, you have an opportunity to be in relationship with Jesus. And we can, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. I can be task-focused, you know. Or like Job, you think, boy, I mean, he questions God. Why are these things happening to me? Why do good things happen to bad people and, vice versa, and, and the reverse for bad people? What's going on here? And we can relate to that. But there are certain people in the Bible that we don't want to... I guess, relate to. We don't want to be compared to. You know, for instance, um, say Jezebel. I mean, you know, how many girls do you know named Jezebel? You know, or, or Pharaoh or, or Nebuchadnezzar or, or Judas. I mean, how many people are named Judas? I mean, you don't want to be compared to that. But nobody, nobody wants to be compared to the Pharisees. When I was a kid, there was a, a camp song that we would learn. I, I'm not going to sing it for you, but it was, it was kind of this idea of I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're blind, you see. I just want to be a sheep, sheep. So it was, you know, it was a song about how the Pharisees kept missing the point. And, and nobody wants to be compared to a Pharisee because Jesus, no other group of people in the scriptures um, felt the anger of Jesus more than they did. Jesus' harshest words were for the Pharisees. He challenged them all the time. He never missed an opportunity to point out that they were missing the point. So spiritually speaking, we don't want to be Pharisees, right? Because we often think that's associated with hypocrisy. We don't want to be hypocrites. So how do we keep from missing the point spiritually? Well, for the next several weeks, that's what we're looking at, trying to answer that question, okay? And we're going to look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and following in particular the interactions between Jesus and this first century group of religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees. And along the way, you may sense a comment I make in the message or a point I make, or maybe something from a verse that's read or a passage that's read, and you think, hey, is he talking about me? And if that question comes to your mind, I might be, (laughs) but be assured that I'm talking about myself as well. So let's talk about the Pharisees. We're going to set the table and then we're going to jump into our passage from John chapter three. So often when you hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson about the Pharisees, they're kind of these caricatures of really bad dudes. I mean, they they're the villains. They're the ones who are always arguing with Jesus. They're the ones who are conspiring against Jesus. They're the ones who end up getting Jesus killed. Um, and, but is that really who they were? I mean, were they pure evil through and through? Or were they, you know, really good guys who were just misunderstood? Or were they a mix of both? Maybe a little bit like you and me. The way you answer that question will have a profound effect on the way you read the Gospels. So let's take a look at some of the religious groups that were operating in Jesus' day to get a sense of the landscape, and then we're going to focus in on the Pharisees and move to John 3. So the Herodians were the most liberal of of the religious groups. Okay, They were supporters of King Herod, and they supported the Roman Empire and the status quo because it, it benefited their bottom line. It was good for them economically to do so. The Sadducees were the religious establishment. Um, They were the high priests, the Levites. They controlled temple worship, and they emphasized the rituals of of Judaism. They were all about tradition. 
Uh, the Pharisees, their name actually means separated ones, which could be a positive thing. Hey, you wanna, they want to pull back from the evil corruption of society or culture. Uh, and they controlled the synagogues and they emphasized study of the scriptures. And they were the orthodox. They were theologically orthodox. They were middle class. And according to Josephus, a uh, Roman centur- uh, um, historian at the time, there were about 7,000 of them when Jesus walked the earth. Now, the Pharisees were a little bit more complex than this. There were two main groups within the Pharisees. There are those who followed Hillel, and they were more moderate and more compassionate. You could divorce for any reason, and they tended to accommodate Rome. They embraced the culture and the benefits of being a part of Rome. And there were those who followed Shammai. Uh, They were considered more conservative. They focused on, on really following the truth as best they could. They did not condone divorce except for adultery, and they were kind of anti-culture. They opposed Rome. The Zealots were the ultra-nationalists. They were radical activists who despised Roman rule, and they advocated force to change the political system. Interestingly, one of Jesus' 12 disciples was a Zealot, an ultra-nationalist. Who was it? Judas, the one who ended up betraying Jesus. And then there were the Essenes. They were, they were isolationists. Uh, they were um, people who lived in closed communities or communes with very strict ascetic rules. Uh, the best known Essenes lived in a commune called Qumran, which was the site of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which group do you think you would have been a part of? Can you see some parallels in, in what's going on in our world, in the church at large, in the society at large? Which group do you think you might have landed in? In the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey said, given the choices, I think I would have been a Pharisee. In several places, Jesus seems to affirm their their desire to be righteous people, to, to, to really pursue holy living. Merrill Tenney said, Jesus was more nearly in accord with them theologically than with any other religious sect in Judaism. So why was this big conflict between the Pharisees in Jesus uh, happening, how did the Pharisees miss the point if they had a lot of things in common? When they did evil things, like have Jesus crucified, it was out of their convictions. And those convictions were based on their understanding of Scripture. I mean, when you study the Pharisees, there are some real similarities to the Protestant Reformation and to the fundamental evangelical movements of the 20th century. Don't get me wrong, I'm not making all these connections here. But first, there are some similarities. First, they were determined to get back to the Scriptures. They were known as people of the Word. What does the Scripture say? How do we apply it to life? It's not just mere words. How do we live this out? That was kind of what they were known for. They, they were the economic and social heart of their communities. They were good middle-class people. They were the pillars of society. They owned businesses. They were known for their honesty and their ethics. They, they upheld traditional values. They stood against the, the secular lifestyle and the, the corrupt culture of the Roman Empire. They were looked to as examples. If they moved into your neighborhood, that was a good thing because the housing values are going up, right? If you, if you were looking for a, a, a husband for your daughter, that was a good place to start. So what went wrong? Jesus can, commends them for something. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you 
will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. And otherwise, they were the most righteous people, most religious people around. How did they miss the point? Well, as we're going to see in detail in the weeks ahead, the Pharisees developed a, a comprehensive system of how a person was supposed to live. And it was based out of their, their, their reverence of the first five books of the Old Testament, the law that was given to them by Moses. God gives it to Moses, Moses gives it to them, and that, that guided their life as a people. And they believed rightly that it was the word of God, God's revelation, but things somehow went wrong from there. William Barclay explains the reasoning of these early Jewish leaders who became Pharisees. Essentially, he said that their thinking was, well, if the law is the perfect and complete word of God, then it must contain everything that a person needs to know to live a perfectly righteous life. If not explicitly, then implicitly. So our job then is in areas where it's not explicit. We have to deduce out what it means and how to apply it to our lives. Basically, there has to be a regulation for every possible incident and every possible moment for every possible person. And so they set out to extract from these great principles of the law, this great truth of the law given to them by God, they go out to extract from this all sorts of rules and regulations to govern every conceivable situation in life. In other words, they change the law of the great principles and truth into legalism of bylaws and regulations, it becomes a burden that enslaves people. The best example of this tendency is found uh, in the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law, this idea that on the seventh day you're supposed to rest uh, because it's given, it's part of the Ten Commandments, rest on the, seven, on the Sabbath day, keep it holy because God did on the seventh day after creation. Um, but for whatever reason, they, they, they wanted to kind of nailed on every specific thing. What does it mean not to work? What constitutes work? What are the loopholes that we can do and still honor this? Uh, what, what gets you in trouble? And they also, along with this, did other things like developing a, a system of ritualistic cleansing. You have to do this. You have to wash this and do this. You have to wear certain clothes. You have to do certain things before you could even approach God. It's all about the outward appearance, about rules and laws and regulations. I mean, you look at the interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus. That's a lot of the source of the conflict. In Matthew 22, we see this kind of discussion and debate when a Pharisee approaches Jesus. It's a famous passage. I'll read it from Matthew 22. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so the Sadducees, remember, they're another group. They had approached Jesus about something. Jesus had kind of, had kind of, kind of flipped the tables on them. They tried to trip him up. He... He says something profound. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess we lost that one. And they slink away. And so the Pharisees are going to try. It says, one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. Teacher, what is the great command in the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord the God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. See, what Jesus is getting at here, what he's trying to get them to realize, what he's trying to expose about their thinking, is that their study of Scripture focused strictly on matters of obedience. Which is, I mean, we're supposed to obey, right? But it's on matters of obedience, not on attitudes and matters of the heart behind the obedience. 
And so Jesus summarizes the commandments and he goes straight to the motive behind the commandments. It's about our attitude. It's about our heart. It's about loving God and loving others as God has first loved us. So in, in, in a nutshell, Jesus, Jesus emphasized the spirit of the law and not the, the letter of the law. So let's move into our passage for John 3 in the last part of the message here. Um, in this passage, we're going to meet a guy named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, a good man. Uh, as we read about him, he comes to Jesus at nighttime, um, maybe because he's a little embarrassed about it. I don't know. But he comes to Jesus and he begins to talk to Jesus uh, about, about think points of the law. And in this conversation, Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand some key spiritual principles. I, I think Jesus must have sensed this guy was different. He was more teachable, more open. He was really trying to find truth. And so what Jesus does is he, he contrasts the viewpoint of the Pharisees with the truth that he came to teach. Real quickly. First, spiritual birth is more important than physical birth or religious heritage. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of, of, the, of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, it is not the lineage of your mother or your father. It's not um, your connections that get you into heaven. To be born of water is to be born physically, but to be born again means to be born of the spirit. Jesus says, that's what you need to be emphasizing. That's what you need to be focusing on. Second, Jesus wanted to show Nicodemus that real life comes from the spirit, not from the intellect and not from the will. Verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Now the, the wind is a common metaphor or symbol for the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And Jesus is saying, basically, no one can control or predict the spirit. No one can do that. And, and what the Pharisees were doing is they were trying to control. Their system was all about control. Their legalistic system was about control, preventing them from giving up control, trying to control their lives, trying to control uh, their, their, their eternal destination, trying to control God, trying to control other people. I mean, legalism says, if I do this, if I do that right, I hang with the right people, I avoid certain things, then God is obligated to do this for me. But that's not how it works. We cannot control God. We can simply give up control to God. Third, Jesus showed Nicodemus that salvation comes only from relationship, not religion. Let's look at verse 14. And in this passage, Jesus is, is referencing a story from Numbers 21. 
where the people of God are in the desert and all these poisonous snakes start buying, biting them. They begin getting sick. They begin dying. And, and God tells Moses, okay, uh, build a, a cross and put a bronze serpent on it, lift it high in the air and have them look at that and they'll be saved. Basically a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. So listen to how Jesus puts it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because... He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the point Jesus is trying to make with Nicodemus is that faith in Jesus, faith in Christ, is the only means of salvation. If we look to anything else, ultimately we will be lost. It's only by looking to Jesus, focusing our eyes on him, trusting in him that we that will be saved. And then finally, Jesus wanted Nicodemus to see that light will expose what is unseen, what has been unseen in the darkness. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So this, this is part of the reason that the Pharisees were missing the point. You see, without the light of, of God's redemptive plan, the Pharisees were blindly trying to create uh, their own system of, of redemption. It was based upon how good they were, defined by their rules. It was, it was entirely based on, on works. And no matter how well-intentioned it may have begun, it was, in light of Jesus, now exposed as worthless to save them. Ephesians 2, 5, and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, when you boil it down, the heart of the issue here was their Pharisees, their main goal was to, to live as radically a holy life as possible, as they defined it. It was about trying as best they could to do what they thought God wanted them to do. Avoid certain people, avoid certain actions, hang only with certain people, embrace certain values, live certain areas, whatever. It was about pursuing a radical righteousness. But Jesus said, you're missing the point. It must begin instead with a radical relationship. Now we meet Nicodemus again in John 7, and he speaks in defense of Jesus, so we see some movement. And we see him again in John 19, where he helps another Pharisee, Joseph of Arimathea, prepare Jesus for burial after Jesus was crucified. So he's beginning to identify with Jesus. And we don't know for sure if he was born into the family of God, but I'd like to think that he was. So let's kind of sum this up. 
when the desire for righteousness, when the desire for outward works-based religion exceeds the desire for relationship with Jesus, everything that results is a counterfeit of real faith. And the seeds of hypocrisy are planted in fertile soil. So how do we keep from that happening? How do we keep from missing the point? Got a few things to think about. The first thing is we need to examine within ourselves whether we are pursuing a relationship with Christ ahead of everything else in the world, including our own outward appearance, our own obedience. So a question I'd like to ask you is how much of your religious activity is about pursuing something other than, than intimacy, a deep intimacy and friendship, a personal relationship with Christ. I mean, you might have grown up in the church and believe that because of your parents and grandparents that you're a Christian. You're not. Unless you have confessed your wrongdoing to God and made a decision to transfer trust from your own good works to Jesus, you may have come to believe that if you just learn enough about the Bible, you'll be transformed. That's about knowledge an intellectual understanding, but we're not saved by intellectual understanding. It's a radical act of faith in Jesus that leads to the Spirit of God coming to dwell within us and, and, and rebirthing us. You may have grown up believing that the way to heaven is to keep the rules. The more rules, the better. And the better you're keeping those rules, the better chance you have of heaven. The way to heaven is by grace and grace alone. You may have come to leave by, by, by creating your own system or subscribing to somebody else's system of rules that you are honoring God. You're probably not. You're probably stumbling in the darkness, missing the point. You may have given intellectual assent to the proposition that salvation is by grace through faith, but your lifestyle says that you are crippled by legalism. And a self-defined righteousness. If so, you need to find the true freedom that Jesus longs to give. Jesus came to give abundant life. Not a weighty system of rules. So how do we keep from missing the point? We look to Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus. We, we love God. We love others. We, we look to Jesus. We follow Jesus. We trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the way he came into the world and and, and pointed to us, pointed out to us, and and modeled for us what it means to to live a life that honors you. Jesus knew the law. He followed the law. Uh, he loved you, Lord, with everything he had, and he loved others with everything that he had. And Lord, help us to. Be aware of the areas and the times that we fall into being a little bit of a Pharisee. Um, to think of ourselves perhaps better. 
or to focus on the good things we've done or the right things that we believe or the things that we understand and think that those things justify us. Lord, uh, help us to be people of humility. Help us to focus on the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. And help us, Lord, to focus on knowing you. And then the obedience follows. Um, Just help us to, to grow closer to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to, to see the point and to live out your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.